0: You've got to remember that the Japanese coming into the war was a tremendous blow to Australia. And that they were coming down to attack Australia, so we didn't feel real good about it. You were scared about the Japanese all the time, more or less, Ned, and uh, they're pretty, pretty dangerous foe. Everybody
1: sort of just kept it closed in was your thought, and you didn't share it with anybody.
0: You had your parents at home. You were worried about what was going to happen to them if the country was invaded. Australia was just helpless. We had nothing, really. Our warships were in the Mediterranean, and the North Sea. What about us? Can you imagine what you'd feel if Sydney was raised? We knew what they could. but we never knew the casualty that was caused up there. They said it was light. It wasn't light at all. We were cut off. Australia was on
2: its own. From Uniting, this is My Life at War, a six part series featuring first hand experiences of the everyday Australians who served in World War II. Each week, hear from some of our last remaining veterans and war historian, David Wilson, as we follow their journey through the war I'm Jefferson Spratt.
3: And I'm Lee Taylor. Part 3. Attack on Australia. The attack on Darwin would change every Australian's perspective of the war. Although the veterans we spoke to were not directly involved, it had a significant impact on them.
0: It was just nothing. There were no buildings left. Nothing. The um, post offices in all the suburbs had a big... sign on the veranda, Darwin Post Office, and here it is lying down on the ground at the post office where they are all killed. Darwin was something. uh, The fellas there, they're in the war, but they're in Australia.
4: There are 188 Japanese planes that attacked Darwin on that day. Um, And as you can see uh, from these pictures here, shipping was the main objective.
2: Here's David Wilson, our historian. He shows us archival photos capturing the Japanese raid. The Japanese had several objectives. The first
4: one was to get all the shipping in the harbour. And as we can see here, you can see several burning ships, over 40, that were anchored in the harbour at the time.
2: David tells us that one of the main objectives of the raid was to take out the communication stations, but more importantly, it was to strike fear into the Australian people and to punish them for siding with the Allies.
4: In this part of the picture, you're looking at... Uh, he shows land, us
2: photo after photo of mass so destruction, charred Darwin, rubble where a house used to sit, to a post location, office nearly burnt notions, to a crisp, soldiers frantically using shovels of dirt story, to try and put uh, out fires.
4: The area and, um,
2: David tells us that some people refer to the first attack on Darwin as Australia's Pearl Harbor. And after looking at these photos, you can see why.
3: So, David, how could this happen? Surely Australia are aware of the threat. Yes,
4: the Australian government was well aware of the threat posed by the Japanese. Um, of course, we're talking about the period after the fall of Singapore, um, the fall of Java, uh, the fall of Timor. Uh, and so there was uh, measures taken to strengthen Darwin's defences. There were defences up there, but they weren't ready, Um and that's, that's the key issue. We were unprepared for the size of the attack that was launched against us. How would they stop
3: this from happening again?
4: Well, the Australian government learned a huge lesson from the bombing of Darwin. And they took a number of measures to, uh, to try and protect themselves. The first thing they did was uh, increase the number of uh, forces who were sent to the Northern Territory. Second thing they did was increase defences uh, by anti-aircraft units being sent up there. They also uh, built a, an anti-submarine boom across the uh, entrance to Darwin Harbour. And the third thing they did was uh, they rejuvenated uh, and supplemented the Coast Watcher
3: system. So what is a Coast Watcher?
4: Well, a Coast Watcher is somebody who observes uh, the Japanese movement of uh, shipping and aircraft.
1: Out stepped my CEO one day and he said, uh, Right, are you chaps? I want 16 volunteers to go coast watching in the tropical islands.
3: This is Mervin Najar of Brisbane Signalman. He stepped up to the challenge of defending the Torres Strait at just 19 years of age.
1: And we nearly knocked him down in the rush. So he sorted out either the ones he thought were had a bit of brains or, or he wanted to get rid of and I was in it. I didn't know anything about coast-watching.
3: But that's okay. Merv would learn everything he needs to know about coast-watching from his training, starting with the essentials.
1: Well, this afternoon, uh, you're going to do your medical training. So I went to uh, the hospital with a bunch of would-be coast-watchers, and uh, they gave us a great big, thick book, which was how to become a doctor or something, you know? The doctor asked. He said, "Now, open it at random, at a page, and you'll see that you know. Just read it and ask a few questions." He said, "What did you get?" And I said, "Oh, complications of childbirth." And he said, "Ah, oh, don't worry about that." So we had our medical training. The next day, I met the commander of the force. He was a naval commander. And he said, uh, have you got your rifle? I said, yes. He said, how many rounds have you got? I said, 50. He said, that's not a lot of rounds. And I said, no, it's not. He said, oh, you'll probably get killed anyhow. And So that was the sort of training that we had.
3: Mervyn and fellow Coast Watcher Maxie would be sent to Massig Island, also known as York Island, It's located close to the top end of the Great Barrier Reef, and it's just under three kilometres long. In 1941, it had a population of...
1: Maybe about 60, because all of the boys had gone.
3: It's flat, surrounded by turquoise waters and every bit the island paradise you'd see in a holiday brochure. On his arrival, Merv is welcomed by a local leader.
1: We've come here to watch for aeroplanes and... uh, surface boats, surface craft, submarine, or anything like that. Uh, If the Japanese arrive, we'll try to count the planes and if we see the boats, we'll try to identify the boats and all this sort of thing. He said to me, Ooh, such a young soldier. I said, Oh, I'm 19. He said, More better, that old woman and me, we become Amani Baba, belong you. So on the spot, I was uh, taken into the family. And, uh, you know, we lived with them and we worked with them, talked with them and did every, everything with them. They used to call me Tissimov, T-I-S-S-A, M-O-V. Tissa being the uh, Creole way of saying teacher and MOV being their phonetic interpretation of, of Merv, So I became just a
3: But Merv is there to do a job, and he is soon reminded of it.
1: It started to hot up, and that's when the air raids started. We would go out at night and try to count the aircraft and the type fighters and bombers. We had to determine then whether they were the Japanese, or whether it was our Americans. Anyway, we dealt with aeroplanes mostly until uh, one morning, there's boats everywhere. Good heavens, we'd better get a bit of paper and start writing this down, you know? So we, we did that. We didn't have any real knowledge of what the boats looked like, but if it had four funnels, we'd say, it's gotta be a cruiser. If it had one funnel, it's probably a frigate or something like that.
3: This really highlights just how vulnerable everyone was on the island. What would happen if the Japanese were to invade? They were completely outnumbered and outgunned.
1: There were submarines in that water. I was at Murray Island on the uh, the Army Ketch Reliance, forty-five foot Ketch, and uh, I, I was doing a supply return with around all of the islands, and we took them away and a man come along and he says something to Randall.
3: Merv explains that Randall and Keith are both coast watchers from another island. All three were on the Reliance doing a supply run.
1: And I said to Randall, what's going on? He said, he reckons there's a, a submarine last night around there.
3: Merv says that the submarine resurfaced the next day and it set a course for the Mamutu, an Australian merchant ship it's carrying crew and families escaping the Japanese bombing raids.
1: And uh, the bad news is that the suburb surfaced and sunk the Mimuchu by cannon fire. We were told to go out in the Reliance. I wasn't there and the Reliance went out to try and find survivors. They searched all night and then they searched for half a day And then they decided to come up. And they're coming back to Murray, to where I was. And uh, on the way, (laughs) Keith was telling me, (laughs) he said, I'm standing on deck. And he said, look out. He said, something comes up out of the water. And the next thing there's a a great gun pointing at them. And he thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is the end. And then suddenly, The sub sunk, went under again. Well, what must have happened? Because there were a couple of Australian destroyers there. The Japs must have heard it, and they went under.
3: Mervyn kept watch over a number of islands in the Torres Strait during his five years in the Australian army. He was discharged in 1946 and later returned to Brisbane. Sadly, he passed away in 2019. Aged 98.
1: Seas go to Massig in 42, Coast watch for enemy they must do. And commander say to trick the foe, Army Sig where island calico. So, just some go to the island store to buy lava lava like Massig men wore.
2: Despite having coast watchers and more surveillance, Australia was still vulnerable. In fact, there would be another attack that would shock the nation. It would take place close to one of Australia's most famous landmarks. And Bruce Robertson, our 100-year-old wireless operator, he would play a key role. But before he tells us about that, here's a quick lesson in Morse code. The radio man plays an important part in manoeuvres. His fighting weapon is the transmission key. Listen to the sounds of the key. These sounds are transmitted in international morse
0: code. So you didn't want the enemy to know what was happening around you. So it was morse code, and you could write that down. Now, it's made up of the letters of the alphabet. And to learn that code, we called it dit and da. Dit and da. So for hours you said da 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 da-da-dit-b. Da-da-da-dit-see. And and over and over till it's stuck in your brain, you you did it unconsciously.
2: And he still remembers it to this day. As Bruce begins to spell out bits of Morse code, I catch him tapping his right index finger against his leg, as if sending the message to his comrades. Uh,
0: The words, we are at war, in Morse code is, da-da-da, da-da-dit, da dit Da 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 dit Da did. We are at war. Did it da dit da da
2: da As well as transmitting messages, da-da. Bruce tells us that he would da-da. listen for emergency morse code from Australian pilots.
0: If it wasn't trouble we would know straight away and we could take the necessary things to inform the right people.
2: But early one morning, while at the Royal Australian Air Force Base in Richmond, Bruce received a message unlike any he'd heard before.
0: So at two o'clock one morning, I was sitting in front of a receiver, a big one, that could pick up signals from all over the place. This Morse code hit me in the ears, very loud, and I couldn't write it down. It didn't make our letters, and it just struck me. It's got to be Japanese. So I screamed out, it's Japanese here. What I thought was, this is the war. They're on our doorstep, because I've got a loud signal in my ears and I can't write it down. It's it's pretty close. I yelled yelled out loud enough for, for those in the signal station to come, oh yeah, oh, they could hear it, they knew. I said, this is Japanese. This was the very first time if we listened into any Japanese signal, and it was right on our doorstep at Sydney Heads. We had no idea where they were. This this war is close by to Australia now. This is our war.
2: So Bruce knows that there are Japanese submarines in Sydney Heads, but they don't know how many there are because there was no radar installed. Bruce tells us they use direction finding stations that can hone in on a signal's location, but this takes time, which they don't have. So a Lockheed Hudson bomber is scrambled to see if it can locate them.
0: It was a black night and no moon, black submarine, they couldn't find them. The sub probably submerged anyway. Well, we put it down to the fact that the mother subs had unloaded the midget subs, which came into Sydney Harbour. And they were waiting there, but they never came back.
4: Harbour defences managed to find out that there were three mini-submarines in Sydney Harbour. What was their target? Well, they wanted to sink as many Allied warships as they could in the harbour. Their primary objective was the American heavy cruiser, the USS Chicago. Now, of the three subs that got into the harbour that night, two of them were detected um, and one of those two got caught up in the um, anti-submarine net Two of those subs never completed their mission. The third submarine came in a little bit later and it lined itself up on the USS Chicago and fired two torpedoes. But the
0: torpedoes were set too low and they went underneath the ship. One landed on the shore, didn't explode. The other one hit a Sydney ferry, which the Navy were using as workshops and killed 20. 20 Australian sailors, so it was a touch and go situation.
4: In total, 21 sailors, uh, that's um, 19 Australian and two British sailors, were killed on the converted ferry, HMAS Cuttable, and a lot more were injured. Now, this third submarine evaded detection and it disappeared without a trace, and it wasn't found until 2006 when it was discovered off Sydney's northern beaches. So just think what could have happened if those three subs had not been detected in the harbour.
2: Jap submarines invade Sydney Harbour. Their only victim, an old ferryboat converted to Navy use.
0: The events of the last few days have brought the reality of war much closer to us. It was my job, you know. If I hadn't picked it up, nobody would have known about it, would they? I, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. And uh, I suppose anybody could have done it, see? I was trying to do something and I did it. And thank goodness I learned my more scared properly. Yeah.
3: <laughs> As the war rages on, more Australians are signed up to play their part Australian women come forward with much needed skills and experience. But this will bring a whole new set of challenges.
1: Oh no, I went home at lunchtime, went home after lunch and and told them I've joined the army. Mm. Mum was shocked and horrified. But once I got my uniform, that was it. I wasn't a person any longer. I was a soldier.
4: Having these women's services, it released the men to go further into uh, the battle areas. We had a job to do and we did it. And the
1: soldiers didn't want us in in the march because we were female and we hadn't been overseas.
3: That's next time on My Life at War.
2: This series is brought to you by Uniting. It wouldn't have been possible without the incredible veterans currently living in Uniting Residential Aged Care throughout New South Wales and the ACT. You can see their service photos, exclusive videos, and so much more at uniting.org veterans. There's a link in the show notes.
3: To make sure you don't miss an episode, click on the subscribe button in your podcast app. It's free. If you like the episode, please leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback and it helps other people find the show. This episode was produced by Tribecast Media and was created and written by me, Lee Taylor.
2: And me, Jefferson Spratt. Post-production by Deadset Studios, including story editing from Kelly Reardon and sound design by Bryce Halliday. Thanks, as always, to David Wilson, our war historian, and a special thanks to Dr Karl Newenfeld who shared the interview with Mervyn featured in this episode.